Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press start then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Clinical Trials, How They Transform the Treatment of Cancer. And today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, Inc. and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have a lot of you on the program today, over 203 participants on the call today from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Belgium, Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, and the United Kingdom. So we always have a bit of a global call as well. And I, uh, I want to actually, um, before we introduce our first speaker, we're going to ask you just a few questions, um, uh, really to help us to better plan these programs. Um, it really allows us to, um, to kind of have the sense of what you know about the, the call before we start it, and then, um, so that's really helpful to us. Um, and so, um, uh, the first question, um, and this will be a rating scale, so those of you who are live streaming will be able to complete this, um, poll, these questions. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand what happens in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the meaning of informed consent. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how one may participate in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I know the questions to ask the healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand including clinical trials as a treatment option. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all now for having answered those questions and participating. It really helps us in planning programs um, throughout the year. Um, so thank you very much. Um, and now I want, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. And Dr. Wong is Professor, Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing an overview of clinical trials, why they are important, including stages of clinical trials, and how they transform the treatment of cancer. He'll also be addressing understanding of treatment options, including clinical trials, and concerns about participating in clinical trials in the context of COVID-19. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Good day. It's a distinct pleasure and an honor to be able to speak to you today and also with the esteemed faculty, Drs. Offen, Kuzak, and Fleischman in today's program about clinical trials. And the reason why I'm here is because this is a critically important part of what we do and also impacts everything in cancer. What is a clinical trial? Well, it is a systematic way. It is a set out, written down way of treating patients. In, such a, uh, in a methodology where everyone who looks after patients and puts them on this, on this uh, procedure or, or 
protocol or way of treatment does it exactly the same. And this allows us to have clinical trials uh, across multiple institutions. We have them at the national level and even at the international level across many countries. Why is it important? Because in cancer work, is it, a way, it is a way for us to be able to get the newest and latest drugs and technology out to you, the patient, and also every medicine that you've been on in cancer, for instance, has at one time or another been a subject in a trial. It is not possible for us to just look at a new drug and just open up a cupboard and say, hey, look, take this. But in order to be able to, to, to get to a point where we can do that, we have to use these in a systematic way, such that at the end of the day when we collect the information, and because we've done it all the same way and treated all the patients uh, in the same manner and have a good idea of who the patients are and what happened to them, we can make statements and say this strategy works, this strategy does not work. So knowing where something isn't working is equally important because uh, we do not want to waste time, resource, and, or, or put pe uh, patients in harm's way if we don't have to. And so <clears throat> at the end of the day, we're able to use a thumbs up and say yes or no. And that's how things become approved because that information, that data, is then uh, accessioned uh, um, together and then put through to the FDA. We're a panel of experts made up of peer groups and, uh, uh, and folks skilled in the art of doing clinical trials, folks skilled in the art of statistics and math. That's very important uh, because you're using a trial looking at a subset of people to extrapolate to the general population. And we know we can't do a trial on every single individual, and therefore we have to use the information in that trial to help extrapolate to the population. And at the FDA is where they can finally arbitrate in a, um, I say, blinded way, independent of everyone else, and with service to the American public as their uh, foundation uh, principle to declare on the efficacy of drugs both uh, from the safety point of view and from the efficacy point of view. And that's when someone says something is FDA approved, that is the end result of having done trials. So this is a critically important thing because it has become a part of how we actually test things. And of course, with, the, with what's happening in COVID, the, the idea of doing trials has really come to the forefront because now it's really uh, the general public outside of cancer have come to realize that's the mechanism of how we actually get drugs approved and tested. So we have stages of doing clinical trial, and we call them phase. Uh, so we call them phase one, phase two, phase three. And what does that mean exactly? It's a way of understanding where the drug is in its development. And in general terms, because these, these all have subcategories, but in general terms, phase one means that we're using this drug, this strategy, this combination of drugs for the first time in a systematic way in people. To get to the phase one, however, requires a long lead-up time with testing both uh, in tissue culture, in set systems to look for toxicity, and, in, in, and sometimes even in individual people. Uh, but in the phase one, uh, we are putting it out in, in for instance, in a, in a specific uh, treatment arena like cancer. And what we're really trying to understand is how best to use the medicine. What is the best schedule? What is the best dose? And, uh, and that's why there's a, uh, a very systematic way of doing this. There's a, there's a phase two drug where uh, we uh, uh, sometimes, after doing the phase one, one of the output of that is, a, is to understand what the phase two drug, uh, the phase two uh, a trial should look like because now we understand how the drug can be used, its potential toxicities and potential uses. So phase two is that medicine or that, or that strategy or, uh, or a technologic strategy used in a specific disease state. For instance, prostate cancer, for instance, breast cancer, for instance, skin cancer. So it is used in that specific situation because there have been hints and leads from the phase one which help understand how to do a phase two. So the phase one leads to stage two because, uh, so phase one leads to, stage, to phase two because the information that we generate there helps us understand how best to do a phase two. Once we discover in phase two that this is potentially uh, helpful, we have what's called phase three. Now this is a more complicated trial. It's a head-to-head -head comparison, usually against a current standard of care. So we'll say this is what we do now because it's been proven to work and we have 
we, and, and if this patient comes through and fits <clears throat> the situation, that's what we're going to do. And then uh, by um, um, randomization, that same patient who fits a criteria may be accessioned onto uh, a new treatment. And the new treatment could be the, the old treatment plus something new or <clears throat> a new combination or new way of doing the older treatment or brand new drug altogether. What it is is a head-to-head -head comparison. And phase three, three trials are very important because they have the potential to change the way we do things because we're comparing the new stuff to the old stuff. And it has to be done in a very systematic way. And that's how we, uh, the, the, the care of patients are transformed in uh, clinical trials. And that's why it's very important to do that. You might be approached to do a clinical trial. And usually the way I approach my patients, I would say something like, uh, you know, this is the way we are, are doing uh, this particular treatment at this point in time. This would be the standard of care. We believe that, this, that there's a potentially better way of doing it. And what we're proposing is that if you, uh, 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 if you are willing to do so, <clears throat> we will uh, examine your case and, if appropriate, uh, ask you to uh, join the clinical trial. And by randomization, you, uh, if it's a phase three, you might be placed on what we're currently doing now or the experimental arm uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, in, it, it, I, in all, it's very rare to do placebo trials, and, and many patients say, I don't want to placebo, I don't want placebo. It's pretty rare, but if it does happen, most of the time it happens in a situation where we would not be doing anything, where there was no treatment that we're doing or it's currently just observation, and it's very appropriate to do placebo there. I want to um, uh, bring something out to the, to the forefront, and I've said, you know, if you want, if you want, multiple times. Why do I say that? Because you, the patient, are the boss. You can accept to go on a trial or not. We'll look after you no matter what. But this is our way of, of bringing some of the best strategies forward. We just cannot open a cupboard and say, try this. Because that will has every potential to do harm. And at the end of the day, we actually never get the information to help other people. So you are the boss of this. And even if you're on a trial, uh, you will be given an informed consent. You'll go through a process where you have every right to read what's going on, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, and at the end of every consent form is a telephone number of the principal investigator and the study coordinator who can then help you understand things better. It, you have to be uh, comfortable doing it. I, my strategy for getting people on trial is that if, if one of my family members or loved ones were sitting in front of me, I could accession them to the trial just as I'm accessioning you right now. And so you are the boss, right, of, of your care, right? So the last thing I'm going to say is that COVID-19 has really given us some challenges um, because of restrictions in travel and our, and our efforts to minimize uh, sort of contact and to expand and have uh, social distancing. Many of these things I'm talking about, informed consent, getting information to, so on and so forth, is done remotely, electronically either through uh, a secure channel or portal that many uh, institutions have, like MyChart, which is what I, we use in my institution. Uh, this includes uh, consent forms and so on and so forth. We are now also very cognizant of, of travel because many of these uh, uh, clinical trials mandate that you come here to my institution. Why? Because we have a systematic uh, program set up to study this particular trial this particular strategy in your particular cancer. It's not available everywhere, but knowing that, we've tried to minimize travel. So I'm gonna end by saying that critical trial is the, is the lifeblood, the critical part of getting new treatments to patients. It is a way that we have that would be able to do it to you safely in a systematic way, such that all the people that come after you will be able to benefit from what's going on here today. It's my pleasure to be able to speak to you today, and I'll end here and take any questions at the end of this session. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Wong. That was really outstanding. What a wonderful um, setting the stage for the program today and lots of incredible information, and we know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Offen. Dr. Offen is Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Offen will be addressing what happens in a clinical trial, the meaning of informed consent, and benefits and risks of participation in the context of COVID-19. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Offen.
Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Mike Offen. Um, thank you for the kind introduction, and thank you all for tuning in. Um, so today I've been kind of given the uh, large task of going over all the topics that were just presented. Um, thankfully, Dr. Wong did an amazing job of kind of taking much of what I was going to say, which makes my job a little easier. Um, so in general, as an oncologist, as a member of your care team, you know, discussion of a clinical trial is an important tool in our toolbox that, you know, it's always important to discuss as an option. And as Dr. Wong said, it's an option and something that you need to enter into willingly and knowingly. Um, and so, you know, when would you enter into a trial? When is a trial right in your, you know, treatment plan? Uh, really depends on the type of cancer you're dealing with, the treatments you've had, and a lot of other factors. So uh, I think the, the big caveat I would say to this conversation is we're speaking in generalities on purpose because when it comes to a clinical trial, it's specific to you and it's specific to this, you know, the cancer in which you're dealing. And so, um, if there is a trial that's potentially of interest, it would be something discussed on a case-by-case -case basis and the nuances of that trial therein. Um, that being said, I think that, you know, as a person is living with their cancer, they should feel empowered to discuss the role of clinical trials during their treatment course. Um, there are a lot of good resources that I think some of my colleagues will go over shortly. Um, one just to mention is um, clintrials.gov, I think, is a, is a great place to consider, um, starting with um, in general, if you find a trial uh, in any, you know, different re reservoir of information and you want to discuss it, I think it's always important to bring it to your oncology team to discuss, to see if it's prudent for you and to discuss the nuances of it. Um, in terms of types of clinical trials, Dr. Wong already went over that in terms of the different phases. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of uh, not broach that in general. Um, but suffice it to say, depending on the phase of the trial, um, sometimes it can be randomized while other times it may not be. Sometimes it may be different doses of the same types of drugs depending on the phase. And again, these are all things specific to a given trial and things you have to discuss depending on the trial itself. Um, in general though, how does a trial work? So first, your, your clinical team or you bring a trial of potential interest um, and it's discussed. Um, the rationale of the trial will be discussed, the science behind it would be discussed, and then a preliminary look to see if, you know, your other medical issues and the cancer in which you're dealing with are a potential fit for the trial. If they are, then there's what we call a consent process, which I'll go into in a minute. That's a formal process where you're given paperwork, you're, you read it over, you're given time to digest it with you and your family, um, and then questions are answered fully and completely before, you know, if you would like to participate, you would sign permission to do so. Um, once somebody has given permission to move forward with a trial, there are other things in, uh, that are done for safety's sake. Um, these are what we kind of call eligibility checks um, to see if there are any reasons why a trial may not be as good a fit from either um, a science perspective, thinking will this medicine have a good chance of benefiting, um, or is there any concern based on how we know these drugs may work that it could potentially be higher risk. So examples of that would be if you know somebody has a cancer that um, there's a trial that may be of interest, that the trial is made with a drug that may try to fight a given gene, let's call it gene A. An important criteria to make sure would be, well, does your cancer have that gene? Because if it doesn't, then these drugs would maybe not have as much of a chance of potentially helping. Um, another option would be if that same trial um, had a potential risk of blood clots, there may be language in the trial that says, well, if you've had blood clots, this may not be the right trial for you because of risk. And that, again, is very dependent on the trial and something that would be done once you've given permission to kind of move forward with uh, the further processes of the trial. Um, if you were to preliminarily meet those criteria, there's processes that then start called screening and pre-screening. That can involve lab work, um, different types of images, or sometimes biopsies, again, specific to the trial and something that would be discussed by the trial team. Um, if after all of that's done, um, everything feels to be in good order to move forward, treatment would then start. Whatever that treatment is, again, is dependent on the trial. Um, and then, you know, in general, in these trials, there's usually documents that say how often you come, kind of lays out what we call almost like a calendar of events. And those are things that would be gone over with you in specific. An important thing just to mention uh, in closing on this initial part of my chat um, is I think Dr. Wong did briefly mention concerns over travel. Um, travel reimbursement on trials are specific to the trial, but if there are concerns over, like let's say there's a trial that requires you to be admitted to the hospital or be nearby the facility for a week or two on, uh, in continuous fashion, 
Um, it's important to ask, are there any travel reimbursements in the trial? There may or may not be, um, but it's important to understand that there are you know, health considerations, financial and psychosocial considerations to take into account when signing up for a trial. Um, in terms of signing up for a trial, to briefly uh, talk more in depth on what we call informed consent, this is a very formal process and something laid out by you know, the FDA and others to make sure that the patient is empowered to ask the proper questions and make a sound decision based on their own wants and understanding of the protocol if they want to proceed with it. Um, so it's our job to make sure that you would have adequate information to make that decision, um, facilitate understanding of the information, give enough time to read the documents provided, have discussions with your family if you would like, and not rush you into a decision. Um, and it truly is a voluntary agreement. I always like to say I feel as if I am in a service industry. We can make recommendations off a menu, but ultimately whether you decide to take that or not is a personal preference based off your understanding. And that's what the informed consent process is meant to be. Um, during that process and in general with trials, as Dr. Wong also alluded to, we can never promise response or benefit of any given trial and any given disease. Um, a trial is designed to see how well a medicine works and how safe it is. And so it's important to understand when you are looking into a trial what we know in terms of the scientific background and what we are looking to learn and make decisions based off of that information and not conjecture. Um, lastly, I'll go over kind of the um, risks of, uh, and benefits of trials in the COVID-19 era. Obviously, COVID-19 has changed almost all aspects of our lives in the last two years, um, and that has had implications on trials. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, hospitals, uh, our goal in general has always been maintained to try to help those with healthcare issues, be it COVID-19 management, high blood pressure, diabetes, or a cancer diagnosis. And the unfortunate findings in the initial portions of the pandemic were rightfully so people were nervous to go to doctors for routine screening or management of known medical problems and complications of things like heart attack and stroke went up. And so it's important for us to understand that yes, COVID-19 is a concern and something that we need to mitigate to the best of our ability, but we also have to have respect for the underlying medical issues that are pervasive and aren't going away regardless. And so, you know, what we always like to say is we take COVID-19 extremely seriously and all different centers take high priority measures to mitigate risk. But ultimately our job is to help treat cancer and that involves clinical trial. And so we take great effort and pride in moving trials forward, both in the scientific arena, trying to develop new drugs and bringing those drugs to our patients. And so in terms of trying to make the risk as low as possible, many trials now allow COVID-19 vaccinations while on trial. Again, that would be specific to the trial. Um, in olden days, some trials may have said that you couldn't have vaccines of certain types on trials, but many trials are now lightening up that language in this current pandemic. Um, we try to leverage virtual discussions or telemedicine platforms as best we can um, and, you know, do what we can do within the language of the protocol to make a person as comfortable as possible and decrease the risk as much as possible during the COVID-19 pandemic. And again, I would kind of close by empowering you that, you know, if there is a specific trial of interest, discussing all of the nuances that I brought up would be something on a case-by-case -case basis that you should talk to your clinical team about. Um, I thank you for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Offen. That was very, very informative and excellent, really, um, outstanding as well. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak. And um, Ms. Kusak is Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak will be addressing how to access resources about clinical trials and how and where clinical trials are conducted, how to participate in clinical trials, including types of clinical trials, specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. Um, it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. 
thanks, Dr. Mesner, for allowing me to participate in this discussion. And thank you, Dr. Wong and Altman, um, for your expertise around clinical trials. It's my pleasure to speak to you about this topic that is near and dear to my heart. I've worked in clinical trials for over 30 years and have always enjoyed um, talking to patients about it and talking to other healthcare providers. So I'm going to be talking about a few different topics, as Dr. Mesner said. First one is I'm going to talk a little bit about how and where clinical trials are conducted. So the protocol itself, as was mentioned earlier, is a step-by-step -step approach that's used to help to decide if a particular approach will benefit people that are getting that particular intervention. Each protocol is going to outline the type of study that you're on, um, and I'll go over the types of studies in just a minute, the purpose of the study, the interventions, whether the drug is FDA regulated, any eligibility criteria, the length of treatment, and then a contact person. And so those are the key elements that you want to look at in a clinical trial. It's, there's pretty strict oversight from the an, um, institutional review board perspective for safety and then possibly also from a data safety monitoring board that may be overlooking it also for some of the higher risk studies that uh, people may be participating in. Your primary investigator is responsible, your principal investigator is responsible for the oversight of the study, but they may delegate certain responsibilities to other members of the research team, but the team is always working collaboratively to make sure that the patient safety elements there. So where clinical trials conducted, early phase clinical trials are usually done in large academic medical centers, the phase one and phase two studies that Dr. Wong discussed earlier, where we conduct studies, phase one, we conduct studies in about 20 to 100 patients. Phase two studies, there's about 100 to 300 patients. And then the phase three studies, again, um, are also done at large academic medical centers, but they can also be done at MD offices in the community, at community um, hospitals and different places like that. We do have thousands of patients that are enrolled in the phase three trials. And many times you will see several centers involved for one study. And so if you look the trials up on clinicaltrials.gov or the NCI website or anywhere like that, you will see in those studies that they're what we call multi-center trials, which are done in several different institutions. When we talk about the type, types of clinical trials, we have several different types. The one that you most be, may most be familiar with is treatment trials. And those are trials such as vaccine trials. Um, they may be drug trials. We may be doing a trial with surgery or a different trial with radiation therapy, or sometimes doing different combinations. We may have a drug that may be approved by the FDA for one indication for a type of cancer, but not approved um, for another type of, of cancer. We also may have drugs that have been approved by themselves, but once you start combining them with other types of therapies, we have then, get, again, need to look at the safety part of that, and so we will um, look at that. We also have, um, when we look at the combinations of treatments, we do have some now, especially targeted therapies or um, times where we're looking at genetic markers or different types of therapies that are, um, you know, thought to boost the immune system. So those are types of um, treatment trials also. Other types of trials that we have, we do have prevention trials. Normally for the prevention trials, we have healthy volunteers for them. Um, or maybe people that may be at high risk for a particular type of cancer. So if somebody has some genetic testing that tells them that they're at high risk for a particular type of cancer, then there may be different treatments that they can do with them or different trials they can do with them. And the different types of prevention trials, we have action studies and agent studies. So action studies are where we do something. So maybe an exercise program or eating more fruits and vegetables or changing some of those behaviors or actions that may cause us to be um, a little higher risk, some of the environmental factors that may cause us to be at higher risk to developing certain cancers. And then we have agent trials, and that's where we take something. So if you are taking medications, if you are taking vitamins or dietary supplements, um, you know, those are considered agent studies where, again, we're looking to prevent the disease from happening and so these are some of the ways that they do that. The Division of Cancer Prevention has a whole website on that where they have um, the different types of prevention studies that are being done. They can uh, refer to that. Um, we have screening studies, which are studies that are testing new ways to fight diseases. Um, the one I think about with that is uh, when we used to do the study looking at MRIs versus mammograms um, for breast cancer patients. It's known that people that have 
uh, more dense breasts may do better having an MRI than having a mammogram because it's harder to see, um, you know, tumors on denser breasts, so they may do that type of study. Um, so we would have a screening study for that. We also have natural history studies. Natural history studies follow patients over a long period of time. Um, they review the family history. They may do sampling of blood and saliva. And it may or be, they may be seen once, or they may be seen every year for the rest of their life. So they can really look at the natural history of diseases and when the diseases actually progress. And so um, that, and it actually depends on how the objectives of the study are written and, um, you know, what they're actually looking for in those studies. The disease for natural history studies is really looking at kind of disease discovery or what can we learn to prevent diseases. And then the last type of study I'll, I'll just talk about is um, studies such as quality of life, supportive care, and palliative care studies. And these are studies that may look at um, pain, you know, different ways to treat pain, um, looking at nutrition, looking at um, uh, looking at uh, nausea and vomiting, sleep disorders, depression, and just looking at different treatment modalities that can be used for that, such as exercise, support groups, counseling, and different things like that. So as you can see, we have a lot of different types of clinical trials that we tend to use. So how can you participate in a clinical trial? So I first would tell you, as Dr. Ofen and Dr. Wong have said, you want to discuss it with your physician to seek out their opinion and their experience with clinical trials. They may know a very specific trial that you may be eligible for or you may benefit from that is being done in your area. Um, and so they may, you know, help you to be able to make those decisions. There's also a variety of resources that are available to you if you want to explore for yourself in terms of getting on a clinical trial. And it used to be that um, for like clinicaltrials.gov, it used to be like we would get referrals for 70% of our referrals would come from physicians and another 30% would come from patients. Now patients are very savvy and looking up for themselves what clinical trials are and how to participate in them. And so now we have tended to see a shift in that where we have more patients that are looking for themselves to find that. But again, I would reinforce that you do want to talk to your um, physician. Take the different trials back to your physician and just kind of get some guidance from, from your treatment team in general on that to see. So when we look at the um, types of trials, you want to be um, looking, you can access through a variety of resources. They have, we have clinical trials lists or we have clinical trials matching services. And so for the clinical trials list, they actually focus on, you know, if you give them a name and a description of the clinical trial, um, they will tell you descriptions of different studies, eligibility criteria, and contact personnel. And as was mentioned earlier, for the eligibility criteria, you sometimes have to hit or um, have specific criteria for you to get into the study. So there are some, some studies if you have particular types of cancers, if you have something like brain metastases, you may not be eligible. There's other ones where you do, if you do have them, you may be eligible. So it just depends on the study. The other things they look at with that are sometimes your um, lab values. You know, if your liver enzymes, if you have a lot of disease in your liver with a particular type of cancer, um, you may not be eligible because they, um, you know, want people that have uh, just, you know, only mildly elevated enzymes and different things like that. So that's where you really want to pull in your healthcare team to help you kind of look at those. Um, the National Cancer Institute will provide you with a list of studies that are available in the U.S. and in Canada. And if you go in, Carolyn will give you, Dr. Messner will give you at the end a list of resources that um, will be discussed during this talk. So don't worry about writing down a lot of things. But um, the NCI website is cancer.gov, and if you type in a keyword, they will give you um, specific information about the trials. Uh, you can also, if you're not as computer savvy, some people are better, you know, more savvy than others with that, you can also call the 1-800-FOR-CANCER number if you want to speak directly with someone, and they will help you go through the criteria for that. They have a really nice resource on the NCI website to guide you through the process of selecting a clinical trial just talking about things like um, gathering details around your a particular cancer, finding the trial, uh, reviewing the different trials that may interest you. You know, sometimes you want to stay in the local area to get clinical trials. Other times people 
um, want to go where somebody really specializes in that particular disease or, um, you know, things like that. And so you want to be able to um, discuss that also and look at that as you are looking through the different uh, clinical trials that are being done across the country for that. You want to ask about the objectives of the trial, the eligibility, again, the study length, and then really do talk to somebody that's involved in the trial. But again, always go back to your doctor and then you'll make an appointment. The NIH has clinicaltrials.gov and that lists all the studies that are available for different types of diseases. So it's not only for cancer. If you had a family member that had another disease um, that is studied within the clinical trials parameter, then you would um, you can go on there for other diseases other than cancer also for that. Um, they have a listing of all the studies available for the types of diseases, as I said. If you want to search by a disease or condition, or you can even do a more advanced search where you can look specifically for trials that are open, maybe trials that have recently closed, where you can look at the details of, you know, what the results were of the trials. Um, and they also have, um, you know, information about the um, the different phases of the studies or types of interventions if you are looking for a specific type of intervention. CenterWatch is another um, listing where they provide a list of industry-sponsored studies and government-funded studies. Again, you would talk about medical condition and geographic location um, and or maybe even specific drugs. And then some also private companies like Pharma may also have their own website. You may have heard about a specific drug and you want to go on there and find out um, what is the, you know, what is this drug and uh, sometimes if you go on their individual websites, you can find that out. We also have clinical trials matching services, which is where you would contact um, a company and provide specific information about the type of cancer, the stage, and previous treatments, and it will automatically ship through the database for you. Some of these sites um, actually um, you pay to do that, and other sites you don't. So you want to look at before you do that, um, you know, different questions you want to ask about matching services is, you know, are they asking about a finder? Do you have to register for the site? Is it a confidential site? Um, where do they get their list of clinical trials? And can you contact them online, you know, by phone, or is it only online? And things like that. When we talk about accessing resources for clinical trials, um, you know, there's some really nice, there's a really nice resource on the American Cancer Society website, which is cancer.org. And they talk about it, um, dividing it up into patient care costs and research costs. So patient care costs are things like doctor visits, hospital stays, standard care treatment, treatment that uh, will improve your symptoms or side effects of your cancer, any lab tests or x-rays. And then you have the actual research costs of the protocol. And a lot of times that's the study drug, maybe lab tests that are performed purely for research and any added x-rays or imaging tests that are solely for the research pieces of the trial. Um, so, you know, you want to know about the differences between the research costs and the patient care costs and who's responsible for paying for that because you want to be able to make sure that, um, you know, that your costs are covered or that you can uh, make sure that you have coverage to an insurance company. Sometimes they won't pay for research-related tests and procedures and things like that. And so you really want to be able to discuss that when you talk about, you know, who's paying for the clinical trial. Um, so managing those costs, you want to talk to the person conducting the trial. Um, sometimes the sponsor will pay for the study drug. Uh, sometimes you can set up payment plans. Um, cancer care, and Carolyn, Dr. Messner will talk about this in a second, cancer care does have social workers on board that can actually help you weed through some of these things also. Um, there may be a billing office or a patient advocate that you can access to find out information about those deductibles. So you really want to utilize the resources to find that information. The American Cancer Society has a legal handbook resource that kind of just talks about, um, you know, um, staying employed during treatment if you, you know, if you are having trying to figure out financially what you're going to do. They, they give you some um, advice about that and some of the um, cancer legal resource centers there, too. I want to um, telehealth because Dr. Fleischman is going to cover the telehealth in response to COVID, but I will talk about some basic questions that you can ask your MD. And so whenever you go to a visit, 
right? You could go for your do this with your own doctors too, but especially if you're going to participate in a clinical trial, there's a few things you want to do. You want to take a notebook or a journal with you so that you can write down questions. A lot of times we will have you write down questions beforehand so that you know what questions to ask when you get there. Again, American Cancer Society, you can sit there, um, and NCI all have resources to be able to help you to understand what questions to ask for that. So preparing in advance is, is important. And then taking somebody with you because, you know, sometimes you don't hear when you're in these discussions, sometimes you don't hear everything that they say because you may have other competing thoughts on your mind and things like that. So it's always good to take somebody with you if you can. Again, you're going to have to check with COVID to see if somebody's allowed to come with you to your appointments and things like that. If they can't, we do have, you know, a lot of places do have the telemedicine that they can, you know, at least, you know, have you listen in on the call or have you um, be a part of the call that way. Um, you can ask if it's okay if you can tape record the meeting, and, um, you know, some people will allow that. Other people may have um, a problem with that. Um, again, you want to just make sure that you have um, any resources you can to be able to help you with that. And then key questions. Why is this, you know, why is this trial being done? What will the study include in terms of test procedures and those kinds of things? Um, will they work with your home physician and communicate patterns to your home physicians to make sure that there's clear communication on what's going on, you know, with you in terms of your treatment. Who do you want to contact the questions? Are there other options and alternatives? As you sign the informed consent process, they should be discussing with you not only what you can do in terms of a clinical trial, but what are your alternatives to doing a clinical trial. Um, how much experience do they have with the particular treatment? If you are doing a phase one, how many patients have been done before you? And, you know, they can't look to the results overall because you need a certain amount of patients before they can give you that data to really make sure that the data, is, you know, is accurate. But you can say, you know, what cohort are you in? Are you in just uh, the first cohort of first three patients that are getting it, or are you on cohort five where 10 other people have gotten a drug before you? So you want to be able to ask those questions. Um, what is you know, any, again, we talked about test and treatment, and then how will you know whether it's working? Um, and then reasons for removal. Why would, you know, what would be the remo you know, reasons for removing you from study or even changing your dosing of, of drugs during the study and things like that? And then you ask the question about stopping voluntarily. I will tell you, as somebody that's worked in clinical trials for over 30 years, you always have the option of stopping voluntarily when you're on a clinical trial, and that's part of that process, but you also want to make make sure that you are discussing that with your care team and discussing what the implications are if you do stop early. If you're getting something like a transplant and you've gotten your treatment getting ready to go up to the transplant and then decide that you don't want to do that, well, that can have, you know, that can have some other implications. And so you just want to make sure that if you are going to voluntarily withdraw, that you know why, what the implications are if you withdraw from a, a study for that. And so that's pretty much it in terms of my part. I am happy, happy to entertain um, questions from you on that also. So thank you. I'll turn it back over to Dr. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Cusset. That was an outstanding presentation, very, very comprehensive, a lot of information, and um, and, and we will be giving everyone all, many of the resources that um, Ms. Cusack um, has so wonderfully provided to you. You will be getting those resources as well. Um, after this program today, you'll get a SurveyMonkey evaluation, and in that evaluation, there will be a listing of all of the resources that Ms. Cusack mentioned with their phone numbers and websites as well. Um, so also for those of you who want to, um, on the uh, those of you who are live streaming, you can download um, fact sheet and a, a publication on clinical trials um, as well that um, is, is on the website as well. So you can do that um, on this, on this um, today's program as well. And so now um, our um, our next speaker uh, is uh, Dr. Stuart Fleischman, and Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments, guidelines for preparing for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology 
list of questions. And also, he will discuss open notes discussion, what those are. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Hi, everybody. Uh, we're here today to talk about the role of telehealth and telemedicine visits during clinical trials. This is a, a rather new thing for most of us. Uh, many of us have had um, visits to our providers for clinical trials over the courses of our, our cancer illness. But uh, with the advent of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, the uh, medicine has really embraced the idea of doing what we can remotely to avoid as many people from coming into our centers as possible. So uh, telehealth and telemedicine are very much a part of what we're doing now and will likely stay in some form, we, we believe, um, for the future. So telehealth visits or telemedicine visits are slightly different than going to a provider's office, registering, and actually um, being seen in person. Um, it is done remotely. It's done remotely either over the regular telephone or uh, audio only over a system that is uh, provided uh, through the doctor's or provider's office or it is done by video, either on a common uh, system that we use in everyday life. Uh, there are very different brands uh, owned by different uh, telephone companies uh, where you can uh, communicate with somebody, uh, seeing them and hearing them at the same time. Um, or it's actually part of the medical record system and it is fully controlled by the provider's office. So um, just as we uh, advocate people preparing for in-person visits, we think that it's best to, to prepare for a telehealth or telemedicine visit as well. And those include um, it, confirming the time and date, knowing um, how the visit will be conducted. Will it be audio only on the telephone? Will it be audio only through a computer or a tablet or some other type of device? or will it be audio and video, and who's going to call whom? And if this is your first time for a telehealth or telemedicine visit, please advise your provider's office when it's set up, and they would be able to accommodate you by calling you or accessing you uh, through the phone or through the device a little bit before or maybe even at the day before your appointment just to make sure that the technology is working and, and everybody knows what they need to do. Um, so having a quiet place uh, is, is a, a good thing. Having uh, your family or friends that you need to be at the, point, at the appointment, can be, they can be with you or they can be anywhere in the world that has an internet setting or a tele regular telephone line, depending upon how the call will be made and how you'll be communicating. And that is one of the advantages, uh, apart from the um, need not to travel, you can include a family member or a friend who needs to be at the visit who doesn't have to travel to the provider's office with you in order to be there, and I, I say be there in a sort of virtual way. Uh, so uh, preparing for the visit would also include having a list of questions ready that you'd like to have answered. It's good to have that in advance because as the conversation develops and as various aspects of your care are discussed, it is uh, easy to forget a question. And this way, it's a, a good way to remind you of the kinds of information that you need to know um, by the end uh, of the call. So uh, there are many things that can be done on a telehealth visit. Obviously, there are some aspects of a physical examination that can't be done. Um, people are working on ways to be able to get that kind of information remotely, and the technology is being developed to be able to do things like listen to someone's lungs or look down their throat. There are some devices that are out now, but they're not commonly in use yet. Uh, they will be soon, we hope. Um, but uh, this is a, an, an evolving way that we're trying to adapt to providing care uh, remotely. 
One of the newer aspects of uh, the telehealth, telemedicine um, revolution, uh, we have to say it's a revolution rather than evolution, is that uh, a number of the notes from the provider and from uh, the laboratories or the imaging, um, imaging departments are available to you after they are screened by the provider and the provider uh, allows you to have access. Yes, these are all of our own records, but um, somebody needs to screen them first. It's somewhat confusing sometimes because it takes lots of uh, knowledge and um, experience to be able to interpret uh, lab tests and imaging reports and pathology reports. And all of us um, without medical training don't necessarily have that. So the provider will look at it first, and then it may go into your uh, electronic chart that you can access at home. The uh, difference with clinical trials and why we're bringing this up when talking about the importance of clinical trials and clinical trial participation is that some of the, that information isn't necessarily part of your regular medical chart, but um, up until recently kept in paper charts, in binders, and in, in loose-leaf books that are given back to whoever is sponsoring the trial, be it National Cancer Institute or the pharmaceutical company or the clinical trials group or whomever. So if uh, the information from the visit with the provider, some of that will should be in your electronic chart, but some of it is uh, it only goes to the entity that runs the studies. So uh, you can get that information, get that information uh, separately from your provider's office, but it may not automatically go into the electronic chart because it's in a different system. Um, We've spoken a lot about the importance of clinical trials and why it's important for as many people as possible to participate. There's a lot of information out in, out there about clinical trials, uh, reviewing some of the information you've heard today, the different types of trials, um, trying to appear some of the myths about clinical trials, that it's just an experiment and no one knows what to do, and that's why um, I'm being asked to go into trial. Those are just myths. It's misinformation. We've come a long way in understanding how um, good research and good clinical investigation contributes to our understanding of cancer and the person receiving the cancer as a whole. There are some very good sites out there to find out information. And if you don't have access to a computer, both the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society not only have extensive information online, but also have really good phone banks you can call and speak with someone who can explain things or who can send information to you or guide you through using the internet to find that information. So uh, this is just a a sort of a brief update on how our use of telehealth and telemedicine has affected not only our regular everyday care with our providers, but also affected the way we participate in uh, clinical trials and clinical research in cancer. Um, I hope this is helpful, and I'll turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding. Just wonderful because people have all these questions about telehealth and telemedicine appointments and preparation for them. I think you've covered a lot of this, so thank you so much. And before we move on with the program, I do want to ask all of you a few more questions. Um, uh, and so I'm going to ask you just a few questions now um, so that um, – Let's just take about two minutes, and then we'll move on with the program. So um, the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of what happens in a clinical trial. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge about the meaning of informed consent. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge about participating in a clinical trial. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the specific questions to ask the healthcare team about clinical trial participation in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this is the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in including clinical trials in my treatment options. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us in replanning future programs to really uh, better meet your needs, that we have this clear understanding of what, um, of what your knowledge is. Um, and I, I do now want to just spend a few minutes talking about cancer care services, and then we're going to take questions from all of you as participants. So I, um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I just want to describe for you the services that you can access from Cancer Care at no cost to you. They're free. And they, the programs are national, so we offer both national programs and services. Um, and the, we have what we call a HOPE line, um, and you can call that line or you can visit our website and post a question or speak with one of our oncology social workers. Um, and our oncology social workers answer the HOPE line. And um, there is no waiting time on the HOPE line. When you call, you're pretty much picked up very quickly. We have, uh, we've actually increased the number of our social workers during this time um, because of all of the requests that have been coming in um, as a result of COVID and many of the uh, issues that people are coping with. So what do we offer? We do offer support. Um, we offer um, both practical and financial assistance, online support groups, um, and we do also have case management, so we're really an opportunity to help you with all of your concerns. Um, we offer these educational workshops and publications, and I mentioned before that you can download um, on the site today um, uh, both um, a fact sheet and a publication about clinical trials. Um, and perhaps most importantly, um, we are a great resource for you. Um, and we, uh, I think that a number of our speakers have addressed how to get information about clinical trials, but you also can contact our staff and they would be happy to answer your questions and direct you to all the resources. And at the end of today's program, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation and in that will be all the links to the, all the different wonderful resources that have been mentioned by our speakers and um, in great detail by Ms. Cusack with the uh, links and the phone numbers that you can use to contact them. So you'll be, so, um, so you'll be getting that very soon. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to um, ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and so, um, and Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And we have a question in front of our online participants, um, and this one would go to Dr. Wong. If I'm doing well on my current treatment, why would I consider a clinical trial? Great question, and uh, usually clinical trials come into play when there's a decision point to be made. So either the therapy is not working or uh, we feel the therapy can be, uh, can be better than where it is. And so usually if things are going well, um, we don't tend to rock the boat unless we feel that there's an advantage to do that. Um, now I'm talking about therapeutic clinical trials. There are some situations which you're on therapy, and, and uh, remember, uh, Dr. Kusak spoke about some of these. Some are uh, quality of life clinical trials, uh, which are survey-based. Some are uh, uh, may have to do with biomarker trials, in which we are looking at, uh, you know, getting material from patients, either an extra tube of blood or some, or maybe a, a swab of your mouth or some or an urine sample, something like that, um, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, why do we do it in a trial format? Again, a trial is a systematic, prescribed way of doing things. There's no willy-nilly. There's no uh, deviation. In fact, if I, do, if I don't do something right, I actually get a, a message from uh, the people running the trial and also my boss saying, Dear Dr. Wong, what are you doing over there? You, you have a protocol. Follow it kind of thing. So, um, so 
it's a systematic way of doing things. And so sometimes that extends to other elements as well. So uh, not all trials are therapeutic trials. Um, but I think the person asking the question may be asking it in the context of a therapeutic trial. And usually, unless it's a decision-making point or we feel like there's something that can, uh, that can benefit that particular patient by doing things differently uh, or they want to add a new drug or something like that, if, uh, those are specific situations in which we may look at a clinical trial um, uh, in a therapeutic arena. Uh, but most of the time, I, uh, many of us, if we're doing well and things are, are, are working and everyone's happy, uh, there's no reason to rock the boat. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and another question um, from one of our participants, from our online participants, and this would go to, uh, I think, uh, Dr. Othin. Um, uh, let's see. Um, oh, this is a question for Dr. Offen. Yes. Does clinical trials mean there is nothing else traditional medicine has to offer? That's a great question. Um, so, as Dr. Wong had also kind of uh, mentioned when when he initially gave his talk, um, no. So it, it's it's context dependent on where you specifically are in your treatment. Um, but clinical trials may be integrated at multiple different parts in somebody's care. It could be, uh, there could be trial options uh, to consider. Um, standard of care is always an option, but like there could be a trial in the first line setting as an initial defense against the cancer. And then there are trials in later line setting for people that have already had treatment. But I would not say that as a blanket statement that a trial means there's nothing standard of care left to be offered, but rather that there are um, investigations being done to see if we can improve upon the standard of cares that they currently exist. Excellent. Um, and um, for uh, Ms. Kusak, a question in front of our online participants, how much time does the patient have to sign the consent form? I'm sorry, say it again. Oh, how much a time does the patient have to sign the consent form? Okay. Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think that you know, it depends on the study. It actually depends probably on your type of cancer. Um, preferably, you have at least a week to be able to kind of go through things, discuss it with your team and different things like that. Many times we will have patients come in for a screening visit. We will give the consent to them, and we tell them to go home and talk to their physicians. If somebody were to have a cancer like a Burkitt's lymphoma or something like that where it may grow a little, you know, you may need to get treatment more emergently or maybe a when, you know, some of the acute leukemias and things like that, you know, sometimes it's a little time sensitive with that. And so we may give it to them and, and uh, you know, try to get them to make a decision a little bit, um, you know, make a decision a little more quickly with that. But we usually try to give them time to take it home, sign it. It depends on the type of treatment that it is, too. Some of our, you know, prevention studies or natural history studies where you don't have kind of that immediacy like you would with an interventional trial, then we would tell them, you know, just make sure you have time to go home and discuss it and think about it. Because, you know, it is a big decision deciding to go on a clinical trial. So you want to be able to have enough time to to make those informed decisions around it. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for um, uh, for Dr. Wong. If I decide to be part of the clinical trial, what protection exists for me and other participants? Well, Clinical trials are actually built around uh, the patient. Uh, and uh, when you look at the informed consent form um, uh, document, I'm sorry, that document is constructed to be as transparent as possible. And it lays out what we're doing, how we're doing it, what's in it for you, um, uh, you know, uh, what are uh, the obligations that you have, and more importantly, the obligations we have on our end. It ends with uh, a contact uh, information to both the study coordinator and the principal investigator of the trial, number one. And as I said before, you are the, uh, the boss of the trial. You can uh, accept or go in. You can stop any time you want. Um, you have the right to ask questions at any time. And it's, I always tell folks it's a two-way street. Although we do have a protocol and we have to do things in a systematic way, we also know that there are extenuating circumstances. So I worked in Buffalo, New York, so we always build snow days in. I'm currently at MD Anderson in Houston. Well, there's a thing called hurricanes, right, and so on and so forth. And so we know there's wiggle room, travel issues, and the rest of it. I think work with folks uh, and 
the most important document you have is the informed consent one. Uh, I, in fact, never have my patients sign on the day that we talk about trials. They take the consent form home and uh, uh, answer it. We'll bring you back on a uh, sort of when we have to do things, and at that point we'll, we'll, uh, we can answer questions and sign then. Or if you wish and you're some distance away, I, we talked about doing things remotely after you have a chance to ask your questions. So it really is built in. I, I, I think uh, it's important to realize that many of these things uh, are built around uh, the uh, you know, previous events in history in which people were not informed about what happened. And, and you should know that when you get to the point where you're doing a trial, that particular protocol has been through the scientific review, has been through an, a, a, a sort of a feasibility study, and uh, a, uh, what we call the IRB, the, the ethics board goes through it, which is staffed by people who are from the lay community, not all from uh, the scientific and medical establishment. And uh, community leaders and advocates actually staff the IRB. So before it even gets into your hands, it's actually been looked at and parsed through carefully, both on the scientific, the methodology, and the ethical uh, uh, evaluation. Excellent. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been outstanding, um, just really a terrific, um, uh, wonderful speakers and wonderful questions. I know we could go on well, at least for another hour and a half. There are a lot more questions that we, we aren't able to get to. Um, but I do want to um, respect all of your time. I also want to um, thank all of our participants for asking such great questions. Um, so I have a few comments I'd like to make to all of you as we wrap up the program today. Um, first of all, for those of you who got to ask a question, or for those of you who um, have a question yet to ask or are thinking about the question, please take the information you learned on today's program back to your treating healthcare team because they do know you the best and they know all about you. And, you know, run the questions past them as well to get some more information. Um, we also will be giving you all the links that you can check. You can call those places and get more information about clinical trials as well. Um, we want you to be aware that, um, um, you know, for many of us on the call today as speakers, um, all of us have been in this field for a very long time, and if collectively you put us all together, it's a lot of years, um, and even individually it's a lot of years. And to some extent, many of us have seen dramatic increases in the treatment of clinical trials and the treatment of cancer based on um, what has happened in clinical trials, particularly uh, for children, tremendous advances in the treatment of children based on the fact that many more children go into clinical trials than adults. That has really been a major um, a factor that has made such a difference. And also, and now many adults are going into clinical trials, but still a much smaller percentage of adults. Um, and we do these programs to really um, have you really think about this as a potential treatment option for you in conjunction with your treating healthcare team, of course. Um, and um, it gives you the opportunity to access care and also the, the treatment in a clinical trials team is enormously, is great. It's an enormous uh, access to them as well. Um, so, um, so we hope that this is something that will make you interested in this subject and, and, and help you um, consider this um, and with your healthcare team. Now, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I also don't want anyone to leave the call feeling you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of this whole community of support, both your own institution, your own healthcare team, um, and all of the resources that we're going to provide to you at the end um, when you'll be getting that from us that we've mentioned on today's program. Thank you all and have a wonderful day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.